0: Greetings and welcome to the Grains of Dirt podcast. Um, And this is part two of the um, podcast I started uh, entitled Jesus is a Calvinist. And uh, again, I want to remind you that that (laughs) I understand that the title is somewhat anachronistic in the sense that there's no way Jesus could have been a Calvinist, and because he predated Calvin, you know, by some 1,500 years. Um, I, the title is used with tongue in cheek. Uh, it's meant to be provocative. It's meant to be uh, to get people's attention. But there's a point behind it in the sense that um, the doctrines that are uh, affiliated with Calvinism and John Calvin predate John Calvin. Um, in fact, they they. These doctrines that that Calvin held up, um, and that others that followed in him followed him, um, are taught by Jesus, are taught by the apostles, and are and are scripturally founded. And I and I know there's been varying degrees of how those doctrines have been applied and understood and interpreted uh, since then. And and so I'm not trying to get into all the nuances and differences uh, between. Augustine and John Calvin and all that, I'm, 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 what I'm trying to get to is the biblical uh, case uh, for the doctrines of grace. So in the, in the first part, we, I gave an introduction to, to this idea, and then I also began going through the acronym that is typically affiliated with Calvinism, the, the acronym TULIP, and I, and I went through the first category of TULIP, which is the T, which stands for total depravity, and made my case from that. So if you haven't heard part one, I'd, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to part one. And But right now we're going to continue with part two, and we're going to continue on in this acronym uh, that defines this idea of, of Calvinism, the doctrines of grace, um, this acronym of TULIP. And the second category in TULIP is the U, which stands for Unconditional Election. And the Reformed view of election, known as unconditional election, means that God does not base his decision to save a person on a foreseen action that the person does. He, he doesn't choose us as his elect people based on our works, uh, our ethnicity, our pedigree, our, our ability, our morality, our intelligence, or anything else in us. He, he, also, he does not look down the corridor of time and see that someone will make a free will choice to accept Christ and then predestine that person to be saved. No, God. that's not what God does. That's not what Scripture supports. Nor does God look through time and see any good work that we do um, in the future and then predestine us to salvation based on our works. No, rather, election rests in God's unconditional election, rests on God's sovereign decision to save whomever he is pleased to save for his sovereign purpose. The idea of unconditional election doesn't mean that they're, God elects people um, arbitrarily. It, it means that unconditional election means that we can't earn that election by anything we do in, in ourselves. God has his purpose for those that he elects and chooses, but it's not based on any merit in us he does it for his glory what will bring him glory for example in the old testament god chose israel as his elect nation to be his special chosen people why did he choose them not because of what they did or what he foresaw what they would do not because they were any better than any other people Uh, deuteronomy chapter 7 verse 6 through 8 says for you are a people speaking of the the jews the israelites he said, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasure, treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord had set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to you to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So God chose them, not on the basis of anything uh, that defined them, and not on anything they did or achieved, but because of his sovereign decision to love them, because of the, the covenant that he made before the Israelites came along with Abraham. So that pushes the question back: Why did God choose Abraham? Why did He make a covenant with him? Well, again, it certainly was not because of anything good in Abraham or anything Abraham did. Abraham was a pagan who committed all kinds of sins, like everyone else. In fact, Scripture testifies of, of several things, several sins that Abraham did. But God chose him for His for God's sovereign purpose, and God caused Abraham to have faith. For God's own glory. Now, some may object to that and say, well, the reason God chose Abraham was because Abraham believed God. And they'll point to Genesis 15 6, which says, And he, speaking of Abraham, believed the Lord, and God counted it to him as righteousness. But we need to step back from this and ask, how and why does anyone believe God? How, how, how do we have faith in God as fallen sinners in this world? Well, the Bible tells us how. Ephesians 2, 8-9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it, speaking of faith, speaking of grace, it, it is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. God could have caused anyone to believe, but for his purpose, he chose to cause Abraham to believe. He chose Abraham not based on any merit, but purely on God's own sovereign purpose, his unconditional election. If God chose Abraham based on something Abraham did, he would be choosing him based on Abra- upon Abraham's works, and Abraham would have a reason to boast. <laughs> now, the synergist, um, or the Arminian, or the non-Calvinist, however you want to describe yourself, if you are, um, if you disagree with the doctrines of grace, they will say that faith in Christ is not a work. They will say you are merely receiving a gift, and that is not a work. But most assuredly, Scripture does call faith a work. John six twenty-eight says, "Then they said to him." What we must do to be doing the works, what must we be doing to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. So not only did Jesus call faith a work, but more importantly, he emphasized that it is the work of God. Meaning that it is God that does this work in all of us. He causes us to be able to produce this work. Because we, being in the flesh, were incapable of pleasing God. Romans 8.8 says, And they that are in the flesh cannot please God. And how then can we please God? Well, Scripture says only through faith can we please God. Hebrews 11.6 says, And without faith, it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. But Paul said that no one seeks God. Remember, we, we talked about that in the last one. No one seeks after God. No one seeks God apart from God regenerating the person and granting them the gift of faith. And again, faith is the gift of God by grace, not something we can do for ourselves. Um, to say that believing in Christ or believing God or, or, or faith is a work that we do would stand in total contradiction with the scriptures, with Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, and with Ezekiel 36, 26. I, I talked about this in the last part. Ezekiel 36, 26 through 27 says, And I will give you a new heart. God is saying this, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be and be careful to obey my rules. So that's God's doing the work in us. Those whom God chooses have hearts of stone, and he removes those sinful hearts, those faithless hearts, those dead hearts, and causes them to walk in his statutes. This is based on his unconditional election of individuals. It is based on whether or not those individuals, I'm sorry, it is not based on whether or not those individuals were seeking God first because scripture says, no one seeks God In and of themselves, Romans, I'm going to read it, Romans 3, starting at verse 9, says, What then? Are the Jews any better off? And Paul responds, saying, No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written. None none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to to deceive. The the venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So there are no God-seekers who are not already born again. This is the condition of every person, and in this condition, it is impossible for any person to merit God's election, God's saving somebody. God will have mercy on whom he will have mercy. In the book of Romans, we find a discussion of this difficult concept, but the Apostle Paul defines the doctrine of unconditional election in Romans 9, starting at verse 10. On Romans 9, it says, and not only so but also when rebecca had conceived children going back to the old testament by one man our forefather isaac though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that god's purpose of election might continue not because of works but because of him who calls she speaking of rebecca was told the older will serve the younger as it is written Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? And Paul responds, by no means, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy again the apostle paul here is giving his exposition of the doctrine of election of unconditional election the point is that god not only makes this decision prior to the the twins births um esau and and and, and um and jacob but uh or i'm sorry yeah esau and jacob and uh but the point is that god not only makes this decision prior to this but he He does it without regard to anything that they would do, either good or evil, so that the purposes of God might stand. And as Paul said in verse 16, God's mercy depends not upon our choice or our works or our actions. Therefore, our salvation does not rest on us. It rests solely on the gracious, gracious, sovereign decision of God. So then on what basis does God elect to save certain people? It is on the basis of, I mean, is it on, I'm going to ask a question, is it on the basis of some foreseen reaction or foreseen response or activity of the elect? Well, I just showed how scripture says that that is not the case, but many people will still insist that our predestined salvation is based on God foreseeing something we do, a choice that we make. They believe that in eternity past, God looked down through the corridors of time and saw in advance who would say yes to the offer of the gospel and who would say no, and on the basis of his prior knowledge of those who would meet the condition for salvation that is expressing faith or belief in Christ, he elects to save them. This is conditional election, which means that God distributes his electing grace on the basis of some foreseen condition that human beings meet themselves. But if the distribution of grace is determined and thus earned by what we do, then grace ceases to be grace, as Paul argued in Romans. In Romans 11:5 5-6, says, So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. In addition... Scripture teaches that our faith is, a, is the result of God choosing us, not the cause of God choosing us. I cited this passage in the last part, in, in Acts 13.48. It says, and when the Gentiles heard this, they began, speaking of the, the, the gospel going forth, and when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoiced, rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, And as many as were appointed, as many as were chosen to eternal life, believed. As many as were appointed to eternal life, believed. Clearly, belief is the result of being chosen. Belief is the result of being appointed by God, not the reason that God chooses someone. And we see the same fact taught, taught clearly by Jesus Christ himself. In John 10, John 10, verse 25 through 27, it says, Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Jesus didn't say um, that you are not among my sheep because you don't believe. If you read that passage carefully, he said that you do not believe because you are not among his sheep. He said his sheep hear his voice and follow him. What causes a person to be able to hear Jesus' voice? If they are among his sheep, if they are chosen his unconditionally elected sheep. So you see, Jesus, this is is supporting my case, that Jesus is supporting the doctrines of grace. Jesus, with tongue in cheek, is a Calvinist. He taught the doctrines that originally have become associated with John Calvin and Calvinism. Um, So if God chooses to sovereignly uh, if he chooses sovereignly to bestow his grace on some sinners and withhold his grace from other sinners is there a, a some kind of violation of justice in this do those who are not given this gift of savings faith receive something that they don't deserve well the question is uh, the answer is of course not If God allows sinners to perish, is he treating them unjustly? The answer is absolutely not. You see, one group who receives grace, the other receives justice. No one receives injustice. Paul anticipates the protest that some will make, that a lot of synergists will make um, for God electing some and then not electing others. And and Paul says it, he asks the question in Romans 9. He says, Is there injustice on God's part? He says that in Romans 9:14. And he answers the question, this hypothetical question. He answers it with the most emphatic response he can he can muster. God forbid. And then he goes on to amplify his response. He says, For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and compassion on whom I will have compassion. And here the apostle is reminding his reader of what Moses declared centuries before, namely that it is, it is God's divine right to execute clemency, mercy, or lenience when he desires and to whom he desires. He does not owe us or any man, any person an explanation as to why he chose to have mercy on some and fulfill his deserved wrath upon others. If you claim that it's unfair for God to save some by grace and allow others to remain condemned in their sin, then you are arguing with Paul. You're not arguing with John Calvin. Okay, I mean, you are arguing with Calvin, but Calvin was standing in agreement with Paul, the apostle, the inspired apostle, who was repeating what Jesus taught. You are arguing with the Holy Spirit of God who inspired Paul, and you are arguing with Jesus Christ himself. So, that is the case for unconditional election, and I'm going to move on to the next um, letter in the acronym TULIP, which stands for Limited Atonement, and this is a very controversial one, okay? This oftentimes, this uh, part of the letter TULIP is, is rejected by many, and people will call themselves four-point Calvinists instead of five-point Calvinists because there's five points in the in the acronym TULIP. Um, but I would say that if you are, if you do consider yourself a five-point, a four-point Calvinist, then you are simply just an inconsistent Arminian. Um, you, you're, you're you're not holding up um, any kind of consistent understanding of the five points. Anyway, moving on, the limited atonement. The term lim- limited atonement is often misunderstood. The doctrine does not suggest that Christ's death was not sufficient to save all people. Christ's blood is sufficient to save every person who has ever lived, but rather that which is limited in the term limited atonement are are those for whom the atonement of Christ is intended for. Therefore, limited atonement means that Jesus died only for those whom God has chosen to save. He did not die to make salvation possible for all, but to effectively save those whom God has elected for salvation. I mean, if God knew who would reject Christ, why would he intend to save them by dying for them? The synergistic Arminian view is that God desires to save all people, and therefore they believe Jesus shed his blood even for those whom God knew would never have faith in Christ and would be in hell. That's the Arminian view. Hebrews 7.25 says, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. The question I would ask the Arminian or the synergist in light of that verse is, does Christ intercede for those whom he knows Will be cast into the lake of fire because and, and who, those who would reject the gospel. If Christ does intercede for them, then why does God not make more of an effort to save those people? Certainly, as I as I stated earlier, we don't see God appearing to people that we pray for, like he appeared for the to the Apostle Paul or to to the, the Apostle Thomas, <laughs> just to name a couple examples. Is Jesus and God the Father at odds with each other over these people? No, absolutely not. Because the atonement and Christ's intercession, as we read here in, in Hebrews, is limited to those whom God has chosen to save. The verse even says that the reason anyone is completely saved is because Christ interceded for them. And when it says, those who draw near to God through him That is descriptive of what an elect person does when he or she has been born again and given the gift of faith. So, if Christ is interceding for everyone, as synergists assume, then why is not everyone saved? Jesus himself told us that he only intercedes for the elect. John 17, 9. It says, I pray for them. I pray not for the world but for those whom thou hast given to me, for they are yours, they are thine. Now the synergist Arminian will cite verses that they claim um, shows that God desires to save all people everywhere. However, in every case, in every verse that is cited, the synergist must pull the passage out of its context to make that argument. And I want, I want to look at some of these verses, these most commonly used verses that synergists and Arminians will use to try to um, refute Calvinism or refute the doctrines of grace. Um, first of all, 2 Peter 3.9. This is one <laughs> for years that I assumed was the silver bullet that killed the claims of Calvinism and this idea of limited atonement. Let me read it. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward you, and here's the key, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Again, for years I assumed that this refuted Calvinism altogether, it refuted limited atonement. It, I mean, it, it appears to a person with a synergistic presupposition to be saying that God wishes all people to come to repentance and not die in sin and be condemned, which disagrees with the doctrine of limited limited atonement that states that God only desires to save some. At least I thought that until I was forced to deal with the context of this verse. You see, that's why it's dangerous to just use proof texts to, to, to support something. We need to understand the contexts of these proof texts that we use. For years, I heard this one verse pulled out of its context as a proof text against Calvinism and limited atonement. You see, the context of this verse is the letter that Peter was writing to Christians in the church. And the context of this verse is about those who were among God's elect who had not yet come to faith or even those among God's elect who had not yet even been born. You see, if you are a believer today, this verse included you. It was referring to you in that you had not yet come to faith, even though in God's eternal realm you were among his elect. So the part that says God is not willing that any should perish is describing those among his elect who had not yet come to faith, who had not yet been born again. <clears throat> Those who, had, who would eventually be effectively brought to savings faith by the Holy Spirit of God. It cannot be describing all people everywhere as synergists claim. If this was referring to all people, it would violate other scriptures because if God is desiring that all people be, be, be saved... If God is, if that is part of His will that all um, come to saving faith and, and repent, then that would everyone would be saved. And it, but Ephesians 11 says, "In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things, according to the counsel of His will." If God is not willing that anyone be condemned. Then according to Ephesians 1.11, no one would perish, but all would be saved, because God achieves all of his will. God works all things according to his will. So every person who has ever lived would be saved. But we know that's not the case. And we also have, um, we know that that many will be condemned. But we also have Romans 9.21. Romans 9:21 through 24 says, has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy? which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. So clearly, there are those who are prepared by God for destruction, fitted for God's wrath, in order to display the great mercy that he has shown to his elect, those whom he has called specifically Now this will cause many to recoil and and object because many will interpret this to mean that by God predestining some to be a vessel of wrath, then that means God caused that person to be a condemned sinner. Yes, God predestines people to be condemned, but not by actively causing them to sin. Um, if he were to actively cause people to sin, just as he actively causes people to be saved, that's a a heretical teaching called equal ultimacy. And it's not the Reformed view. It's not supported by Scripture. He knows that people will choose to sin from their own so-called free will. But God knows that in Adam, we were all condemned already. God does, however actively cause a person to be saved, but he does not cause actively cause a person to be condemned. He just leaves people in their condemned state because of their love for sin. He does not predestine the saved and the condemned in the same way. As I said, that, that is called equal ultimacy and does not reflect the uh, biblical and reformed view of the doctrines of grace. God just allows the condemned to live and die in the sin they chose to live in. The sin that they committed in Adam and then continued to commit in their lives. Now, the Arminian may reject limited atonement by citing a passage like Matthew 22.14. Matthew twenty two 22.14 says, For many are called, but few are chosen. The Arminian says that um, God calls everyone, but only those whom he sees will accept Christ out of their own free will are chosen. But who is really doing the choosing in this Arminian view? Not God. The ultimate choice is resting in that view. The ultimate choice is resting with the sinner. And again, that kind of interpretation of this verse is pulling this verse out of its context. It is putting words into the text that are not there, which is called eisegesis. The context of this verse is the parable of the wedding feast. When some guy comes in but has no wedding garment and and then is thrown out. And that is not making any kind of a statement about God's foreknowledge of that person's actions. It is stating that this person was not given a wedding garment and did not belong there. You see, ancient kings often provided the proper attire to the guests at their feasts. Therefore, the rejected man's, um, the, the man that was ejected, lacked, his lack of a proper garment indicated that he was not given the proper garment. He may have heard the call, but he was not among the chosen. So, this verse makes no case either way regarding limited atonement because it's descriptive. It is descriptive of the, the many who will claim to be Christian but have no real fruit of such a profession. Calvinists are called to go out and evangelize to the world. To call all people to repentance and faith in Christ. And we are to call as many as we can because we don't know who God's elect are. God hasn't labeled Elect people, um, so we are to just go out and proclaim it to the world, and the elect will hear and believe, and the, the those that are not elect will be condemned in their rejection of it. But we know that the non-elect will not respond in true saving's faith. The few who are chosen are those who are given the wedding garments of Christ's righteousness, and that's what the parable is pointing to. And and that is evident. Um, in the outworking of their faith. They eventually will respond to the gospel call of Christ because of God's gracious gift of faith. Another commonly cited passage by synergists or Arminians against the idea of limited atonement, a very common verse uh, that is used, is 1 Timothy 2, verses 1-4. through 4. Let me read this. 1 Timothy 2, verses 1-4. through 4. It says, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. Okay, now it's gonna, he's going to go on to describe what kinds of people. For kings and for all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. So here, verse 4 says God desires all people to be saved. So therefore, how can limited atonement be true if God desires all people to be saved? Well, if you pull verse 4 out of the context and ignore the first three verses and what preceded that, it's easy to come to that conclusion. But in order to understand what Paul meant, we must consider the context and interpret verse 4 in light of verses 1 through 3, and the greater context of the letter and the rest of God's word to make them, to understand it. Paul was writing to young Timothy, who was a pastor in Ephesus. The church there had been enduring great persecution from those in power, those in authority, kings and, and leaders. So there was a certain amount of animosity among the, in the church on the part of the, the persecuted church toward those in power. And Paul was giving this command to pray for these people who were persecuting them. And this was was a radical thing for them to hear. And knowing how people may respond to such a radical command, Paul extinguished the people's bitterness by reminding them of God's grace. And Paul stated that they should pray even for these wicked leaders because God desires all people to be saved. And when he says that, he's speaking of, All kinds of people. Because he qualified that by describing these certain kinds of people. Even wicked kings and leaders. So the implication must be understood that God desires all kinds of people to be saved. And not all people everywhere. This implication is strongly supported by Paul calling people to pray for all people. For kings and for all who are in high positions. These are kinds of people which must be understood when Paul then says that God desires to save all people but again if God is sovereign and he desires all people everywhere to be saved I mean the result then would that be would be that all people would be saved this and thus we should be universalists and believe that everybody goes to heaven but that view is clearly false when we read all the Scripture. So to interpret this passage as saying God wants to save all kinds of people instead of just all people who have ever lived, the Calvinist is not committing eisegesis and adding to the text. No, the Calvinist, or the monergist, is rightly understanding the whole context of Paul's statement. John Calvin said that God's desire for the salvation of all means that there is no people, and no rank in the world that is excluded from salvation. So, meaning, there no, when he says no people, no kind, no ethnicity, no ethnicity, no nation, or whatever. <clears throat> Another passage that Arminians like to cite in rejection of the doctrine of limited atonement is First Timothy, chapter four, verse ten. A few chapters after First Timothy chapter two, and it. First Timothy four ten it says, for to this, for to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Okay, so if Christ is the only Savior for the elect, then how do we understand if he is only the Savior for the elect? Um then how do we understand this passage which seems to make a distinction between all people and those who believe? Does this mean all people without any kind of distinction? Well, the Arminian will have to qualify this statement and add a word into the statement in their interpretation. Um, They qualify the statement as saying that God is the possible Savior of all people. Paul does not explicitly define uh, what he means by all people in this passage, though, as I said two chapters earlier, Paul did make a distinction in using this term to describe all kinds of people, as I just showed a minute ago. The most plausible and biblically consistent understanding of this passage in 1 Timothy 4.10 is referred to by Dr. James White as monotheistic exclusivism. Monotheistic exclusivism. What Paul is, is saying is that God is the only true Savior in the world and that humanity cannot find another competing Savior outside of the living God. And this standing in contrast to all of the gods that people worshipped that were not living gods but idols. Also, the term Especially those who believe in this passage is better rendered, "quote unquote." That is of those who believe. So, the, so the passage is more clearly worded in this way: um, "Who is the savior of all people?" That is of those who believe. So, Paul was uh, his further giving explanation of who the all people is. Um, it functions as an as an expla- a, f- a further clarification of the preceding statement. So again, the all in this passage is not speaking of all people everywhere, but all kinds of people, just as Paul used it in 1 Timothy 2.4. But because of traditions and because of presuppositions, the Arminian, the synergist will continue to protest that this idea of limited atonement is not fair. They will say that God predestines some for heaven, but predestines many more for hell. And I already explained the issue of, of double predestination and that God actively causes people to be saved, but he does not actively cause anyone to sin or be condemned. He predestines people for the lake of fire based upon their own sin, their own love of sin. The committed synergist will still say it's not fair because He condemned, the, the condemned don't have a chance to be saved. Um, they will ask, why, why would God even allow the condemned person to be born. And we see this same issue raised with regard to Judas in Mark 14, 21. It says, For the Son of Man man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. So, I mean, it would have been better for Judas if he was never born. So therefore, why did God allow him to be born? Well, God had a divine purpose for Judas, even though Judas was not among the elect of God for salvation. And as Romans 9 said, God has a purpose for all whom are condemned. Romans 9.22 says, What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make His known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to? To make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory. So God has decreed, uh, has a decreed purpose for all who are born, whom he knows will even be condemned. But also, the Arminian who raises this objection, uh, uh, the the idea of why God would allow a condemned person to be born, the Arminian has the same problem. The Arminian says that God predestines those whom he foresees will choose to accept Christ as their Savior. But God knew who would make this choice and who would not. So why would he allow people to be born that he knew would reject Christ? Um, so So that they have the same problem. The answer is always the same, that God's will would be done. And God often uses secondary causes such as our sinfulness and the condemned sinner, to achieve his will and bring glory to himself through his redemption of an elect people as well as the just judgment brought upon sinners. God is not the author of sin, but he is sovereign over sin. The sin of man does not trump the decretive will of God. Some may object and and, and cite passages such as Matthew 13.57. It says, It says, and they, the the, the Jews in, in Nazareth, took offense at him, but Jesus said to them, "A prophet is not without honor in his in except in his home, home. I'm sorry. A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. But this reality that Christ did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief was part of do- God's decree." It, not because of s- sin was somehow limiting what God wanted to do. I mean, if, if, if God is limited by our sin, then we are all doomed. The greatest sin that man ever could commit or did commit was the crucifixion of God the Son. And through that, God's power brought about the greatest good for us. Anyway, the question sh- should never really be about fairness. I mean, if we want fairness, we all sinned in Adam and we, we all should be condemned. We have all been sinning every day from our birth, so we all deserve condemnation. The fact that God chooses to save some and allow others to receive just judgment that their sin deserves does not make God unfair. The, con- the condemned get what they deserve while he chooses to show undeserved favor or grace toward others. <clears throat> As our Creator he has the right to show mercy to some and justice to others, which is exactly Paul's argument for limited atonement in Romans 9, 21-24 that I read earlier. God is not actively causing men to rebel or sin against him. God is not the author of sin, but he does actively cause his elect people to be born again and believe in Christ. and This belief is the sign to the person that God, by his grace, has chosen to show mercy to him. It is a sign to the person that they are among the elect. The Arminian will, of course, continue to reject this and cite other scriptures out of context to make their case, such as John 3.16, very commonly used, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. This is one of the weaker arguments by the synergist because this verse says nothing about man's free will decision for Christ. It is simply describing the fact that all the believing ones will be saved. And that is the proper translation that all the believing ones will not perish but have eternal life. Using the term whoever or whosoever tends to imply that God intends to potentially save all people. But that is not what the verse is saying. It is not what is stated anywhere else in Scripture. He doesn't potentially save anyone. He effectively saves whom he wills to save. Faith is a sign that you are among God's elect who receive his grace and mercy. And the synergist will say, well, but this says that God so loved the world. So that means he must be trying to save everyone. That must mean everyone everywhere. Well, The answer is no. The Apostle John, who wrote the Gospel of John, uses the word world, or cosmos in the Greek, in several ways, depending on the context. For example, John 17, 9 says, Jesus here is talking, he says, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. If, if God so loved the world, and the world means every single person, why would Jesus not pray for the world in John 17? Because the word is being used differently in that context um, than in John 3.16. So, so we can't just assume that the word world, that it means God wants to save every person everywhere. Because again, that would mean God's purpose and will is being thwarted most of the time unless it is God's purpose and will to allow people to come into being and rebel against him and receive their just condemnation. John 3.18 says, Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Now the synergists will say, See, this verse says a person... Has to, to decide to believe in Christ so that they can be saved, but this is saying that, that the person is condemned already, and we know they are condemned because they don't believe. You see, faith is the sign that God has chosen to save you, and is the work that He does in us. It is not the work; it, it is not a work we do, wherein God then owes us salvation. So, in John three sixteen, the term "world" in this context is in reference to kinds of people Jews and Gentiles not just Jews as a pharisee like Nicodemus would have believed remember in the context of John 3:16 Jesus is speaking to the pharisee Nicodemus as many Jews in that time especially the relig- religious leaders believed that the purpose of the Gentiles was to fuel the fires of hell but God showed his love for all kinds of people from all over the world throughout time who would be given faith in christ but that blood atonement given by christ would be limited to an elect people from all over the world and from many future generations even two thousand years later irresistible grace is the next category of the doctrine of of doctrines of grace so the doctrine of irresistible grace is often just as, as offensive to people as limited atonement the reason is because it is interpreted as meaning that God violates our free will and forces us to accept Christ. This is however, this however grossly misrepresents what this doctrine is. The doctrine of irresistible grace is also known as effect, as, as effectual calling. It is the teaching that the Holy Spirit would, will effectively work in the lives of the elect so that they they inevitably will desire to have Christ as their Lord and Savior and have savings faith in Christ. The Bible teaches that the Holy Spirit never fails to bring to salvation those sinners whom he personally calls to Christ. John 6, 37-39 says, All that the Father gives me, this is Christ talking, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up in the last day. All that God the Father gives to Christ will not be lost. That's what this is saying. This emphasizes the monergistic work of God and does not present a need for the person to somehow cooperate with God's will concerning salvation. Certainly, cooperation on our part comes into play with regard to our sanctification after we are born again, after we are made alive in Christ. But regarding salvation, we are dead spiritually prior to that and cannot cooperate with God in any way out of our free will because we are in bondage to sin. Before before our salvation, we had no free will. But God in his mercy gives us new spiritual life. And when we are awakened to that new spiritual life, Jesus Christ is then irresistible to us. To reject Christ is to display that you are still spiritually dead. To repent and believe in him is to show that you have been given the grace of God, that that the spirit of God indwells you and that you are free from the bondage of sin. And then Christ becomes irresistible to you. 1 John 5, one says everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. So the chronology of our salvation is clear. We must first be born of God, born from above, born again, regenerated, brought to spiritual life, whatever you want to call it. The work of God must first change the heart of man, and the result of that changed heart is belief in Christ. It never begins with a man Choosing to believe, and then the Spirit making them alive, because that would mean we can please God while we are still in the flesh, and Scripture clearly rejects that. Romans eight eight says, "And they that are in the flesh cannot please God." Now, the Arminian, the synergist, or the non-Calvinist will say that God's God is still violating a person's free will if they inst if He instills this irresistible grace. I've heard some piously say that. God is a gentleman and won't force anyone to accept him. Really? So you you believe that God causing a person to be spared eternal torment in the lake of fire and separated from God for eternity is (laughs) ungentlemanly? That's ridiculous. I've I've even heard some well-known theologians equate irresistible grace to spiritual rape. I find those kinds of comments to be utterly disgusting and offensive and frankly stupid. It shows a complete disregard for the holiness of God and the utter depravity of man. It shows no understanding of the amazing grace and mercy of God. Let's say let's say you have a heart attack and you are dead on the table and the doctors are about to zap life back into you but one of the nurses asks, "Well, what if what if he doesn't want to be brought back to life? We can't violate his free will." Well, that's foolishness. And so is the idea that God's irresistible saving his grace is a violation of our free will. God has the right to change our will and scripture clearly states that he does. Again, listen to these passages from God's word. Ezekiel 36, 26 and 27. It says, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. He causes us to walk in his statutes through the removal of our stone-dead spiritual hearts and replacing them with a spiritually alive heart that pumps the lifeblood of faith. Another passage where God controls our will, Proverbs 21.1, says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord he turns it wherever he will god is the so, is is sovereign he is the sovereign and the holy lord over all things and he alone has the right to change the heart and will of man to be conformed to his will but scripture clearly teaches this just listen to john 6:44 john 6:44 says no one can christ talking here no one can come unto me unless the father who sent me draws him and i will raise him up on the last day not only is man incapable of coming to christ but he is wholly unwilling it takes the drawing of the father which is not an appeal it's not an appeal by god but the drawing of god is a sovereign act like drawing a bucket of water from the well It is not God striving and begging us to come to him or him trying to dangle a carrot in front of the rebel sinner to get him to come. No, God's drawing is efficacious. It is the sovereign act on his part. So I am running out of time here. So I'm going to stop here in the middle of Irresistible Grace um, and I will continue in part three and wrap this up. So again, I thank you for, for listening. And I hope you have a wonderful day in the Lord. God bless.